All the world will be your enemy, prince with a thousand enemies. And whenever they catch you, they will kill you. But first they must catch you. Digger, listener, runner, prince with a swift warning. Be cunning and full of tricks and embrace the void. The universe is a cruel, uncaring void. The key to being happy isn't to search for meaning. It's to just keep yourself busy with unimportant nonsense. And eventually, you'll be dead. Stop fighting it. You're going to be okay. Face the void. Call it a one-way vacation to the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 169 of Embrace the Void, where we work hard to earn that title. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we are talking void as prison. So, let's get carceral. All life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. My guest this week is Emma McClure, a parole solicitor who works in particular with individuals with mental health. Emma, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, darkness, my old friend. It's nice to meet you in uh, in the voice. Uh, it's been fun chatting with you. Marsh put us in touch, and I'm really excited to to have a discussion about our shared interests. So to get us rolling, Emma, do you want to walk folks through what your role is in the legal system and how you were attracted to working in that particular part of the legal system? Sure. So as you said, I am a, a solicitor, um, and my day job is to represent uh, prisoners and mental health patients in proceedings that determine whether or not they are to be released from prison or discharged from hospital. Almost all people who end up in prison in the UK, at least, are are released automatically at some point. Those who come before the parole board for initial release are generally life sentence prisoners. And life only means life here for a small subset of people, about 80 people in total. Others will have a minimum term that they have to serve in prison. 80 people in the whole country? Yeah. Who have life means life sentences, yeah. I know that's a bit different. It's a bit different in the US, but yeah. Everyone else who gets some, what's called a life sentence will have a minimum term on that sentence, after which, if it's felt safe, they can be released. And they are the people that I represent most regularly. And obviously, you don't get life sentences for things like stealing. This means my day to day job is representing people who have committed the most serious crimes murderers, rapists, robbers, and terrorists. Um, and I represent them and I advocate on their behalf in hearings. So the question follows is why would I voluntarily do that? Why am I interested in that? So the start of my answer to that is quite cliched in that I've always um, wanted to help people, which I cringe at myself as I say. as that cliche. Comes out, of my, uh, comes out of my mouth. But um, I've been particularly drawn to helping people um, where there are big uh, power differentials, so where the state has power over an individual, mm-hmm. um, the most extreme version of that is obviously something like the death penalty which is doesn't exist here um and then the, the next following from that is being detained in a prison or in a hospital and the idea that you're making a profound difference to that person's life and it's something that i find much more interesting and motivating than other areas of law i can't fathom doing corporate mergers or tax law or something like that it just does not appeal to me mm-hmm. at all um mm-hmm. the other thing that appeals to me is also sort of the moral challenge of determining what's right in more morally complex situations so for me it feels like it's it's easy to be on the side of say the victims of crime or for mm-hmm. on the side of mm-hmm. refugees I'll say I say that is it? some people have some funny opinions about refugees <laughs> easier for some but, than others <laughs> but whereas I find it interesting about sort of passing what is morally right in more difficult situations. So representing someone who most people would consider an evil person or a very bad person and mm-hmm. what's morally right right in that context. I find that quite sort of intellectually stimulating as well as the moral compulsion, I would say. 
Interesting. Yeah, I mean, if that's cliche, then I guess I'm also cliche because I got into doing ethics because I wanted to help people and because I liked messing with really complicated ethical questions. So I'm right there with you. Um, do you want, so you, as you mentioned, you're not dealing with like minor crimes here in terms of your parole activities. You're dealing with uh, what some of the voidiest cases around, it sounds like. Do you want to maybe describe a little bit as much as you can without, you know, I know you have some some restrictions on what you can say, maybe describe your cases some? So obviously I can't be specific due to client confidentiality, um, mm -hmm. but I, I would obviously have with uh, my clients being a solicitor and anyone, if I happen to intimate anyone by full name during the, the course of this conversation, that's not going to be someone I've represented or have anything to do with. And it will be only from publicly available information. So in terms of the kind of people I represent, I have represented people, for example, who have murdered children, who have murdered children where the motivation has been sexual, for example, and every form of abuse of children up to up to that point, serial rapists, people who have tortured other human beings, people who've um, had terrorist aims in their offending. The only sort of voidy kind of person that I I haven't encountered um, through this work is is, is serial murderer, um, simply mm. because that is one of the few things that will get you a whole life term in the UK. And so they are people that I would never come into contact with via parole because I'll never be eligible for it. Interesting. So you, you talked about how you do this, you deal specifically with individuals with mental health. Does that mean that like you haven't, you know, you haven't worked with anybody who would be diagnosed as like sociopathic or antisocial personality disorder or that they, they have, but they haven't, you know, they haven't committed severe enough crimes as a result of that disorder? Oh no, so I, I do both. So I have um clients mm -hmm. who are in who are in the prison system mm -hmm. who have never who are diagnosed with mental health issues but don't aren't in hospital. I also deal with people who are in high secure hospital because they are considered mm -hmm. to be dangerously mentally ill. So I have a, a, a very high proportion of my clients have diagnoses of personality disorder or diagnosis of traits of personality disorder. I don't generally see people who are diagnosed as sociopathic, but I see I see a lot of people diagnosed as psychopathic. Hmm. Um, Can you clarify that distinction right as as it works in your area? So I think the distinction um, I so I'm not a psychologist mm -hmm. or a psychiatrist, so I'm not too au fait on exactly what the distinction is. I don't think um, sociopathy is a a thing that is diagnosed by the mental health professionals that would be involved in this mm -hmm. area. They tend to diagnose other things rather than say someone's a sociopath. Gotcha. Do you? Do you see sort of a range? What, what's, I guess I'm curious what other sorts of mental health issues you feel like you most often see associated with these kinds of cases? It would probably be easier to say what kind of mental health conditions I don't see. Oh, interesting. Um, almost, all, all of, almost all of my clients. In fact, I, I say that and then I can't think of any that don't have diagnosis of either problematic personality traits, whether or not they decide that that's enough to be a diagnosable hmm. disorder or psychopathy or but also other more common men, the mental health conditions a lot of them are all, all have depression anxiety more common common garden mental illnesses as well that's sort of usually a given that they have those and then on top mm -hmm. other things yeah yeah so i'm curious then you know one of the things that that we chatted about before the show that is of interest to both of us is this idea of luck and i've talked specifically on the show about moral luck previously where people are held sort of morally responsible for things that are beyond their control and i've of course argued on the show that people don't have free will so nothing is under their control i'm curious what your experiences in this world have done to your perceptions of issues around luck and free will and how that then has in turn shaped your work so my starting point there would be that I I don't believe free will exists. I mm -hmm. think that that to be fair, that belief predates this work. So it's not um being in this area hasn't caused me to feel that way, but it it has influenced how I see a lot of what goes on because mm -hmm. I I sort of um don't consider anyone that I see to be um, to have necessarily chosen deliberately to do exactly what they have done, nor do I think any of them are evil or bad people, um, which um, a lot of people who work in other parts of the system sometimes see 
mm-hmm. people who've committed terrible crimes as. Um, I see the the lives that these people have um, before they've committed these offences, and I've. If you can imagine, so if you sit and imagine what you would imagine to be the worst possible upbringing for a child that doesn't mm-hmm. involve that child being killed or physically maimed, mm-hmm. I've met, you know, I've met people who have that was their childhood, that was their experience, mm-hmm. um, and obviously they didn't choose that. And then even if everything else was relatively okay, that doesn't account for genetic luck in terms of mm-hmm. um, genetic makeup. For obviously more obvious things like psychopathy or where people have extra Y chromosomes and things like that, but also just propensity to become addicted to substances and problem solving, emotional control. They've all going to have, they are all going to have genetic components as well. And then you have people who have that look that that roll of the dice is, is what mm-hmm. they've been given. And then they commit a serious offense and then you put them, into the prison system um, and our current current prison system is not designed to fix any mm-hmm. it might be it might have been it might have been planned to fix the problems but it certainly doesn't actually fix the problems and then they're expected to behave well or better in an environment that's much worse and that's where i so i i really struggle with the way that the current system is set up and and what we could realistically hope to achieve given the way the system is set up. Yeah, so these are all things that concern me as someone who's interested in the moral luck side of things. And it seems like these kinds of issues, you know, some people will, will describe like discussions around free will as navel gazing and won't see it as sort of significant to how we actually engage with the world. Um, but it does seem to me that it has an important role to play in these um, criminal justice reform kinds of discussions. I'm curious, you mentioned at the beginning your your belief in free will predates your engagement with the legal system. Was there some sort of moment when you realized that you didn't believe in free will or did something, oh, some argument convince you or was there some inciting incident that brought that about? So I think I can trace it back to, because I have a fairly um, standard route that got me into... Um, skepticism which is um i was interested in atheism originally and watching you know, people and the arguments and the debates that were being had about that in the sort mm-hmm. of sort of mid 20 noughts i don't know what what, what you call that decade between mm-hmm. 2000 and 2010 around mm-hmm. around then um and, I, and I, I remember listening to many, many hours of debates about free will that got very tedious and complicated and made my brain hurt. I can't remember a lot of the specifics about them, but I just remember being persuaded by the idea that everything that happens is caused by stuff that happened before. And I don't see how I am in any real sense making a conscious choice to do anything um, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, if I've just, I decided what I had for, lunch, for, for breakfast this morning, um, but that thought came into my head on its own. I can't explain why I had that particular craving this morning. And I am a bit of a amateur meditator sometimes, a fair weather meditator. Sometimes I meditate and sometimes I don't. And I have mm. noticed that when I, when, I, when I do that, that, you know, thoughts will appear in, in my consciousness without my, bit, without my conscious effort to do. They just appear there, which makes me think that, I don't have any control over those things mm-hmm. and therefore no free will. You don't think uh, some do that if you practiced hard enough, you could get control over it? <laughs> no, I, well, I don't, I, I, I've so far failed to practice hard enough. So. <laughs> no, I'm sympathetic. <laughs> and I think even if you did get control of it, as you said, the sort of the constitutive factors of luck that would make you the kind of person who got the illusion of autonomy or agency would um would themselves not be things under your control right your upbringing as you say and such like that so i'm very sympathetic to these arguments too though i think i've approached them in different ways than some other folks in the atheist and and secular community have done since a lot of them have sort of based their views around neuroscience where i've been more in um sort of analytic philosophy world um but yeah so despite the fact that you work with 
as you say, the worst of the worst of these kinds of cases, you are, I think, a self-identified prison abolitionist, uh, which is, as a, as I gather, a somewhat growing contingent, I think, amongst um, advocates in this area. Can you maybe explain what prison abolition means to you and why you support it? So, yeah, um, when you hear the phrase prison abolition, I suppose it probably sounds like what I mean is get rid of prisons completely and i think a thing a thing similar to um the phrase defund the police happens mm -hmm. where people don't quite understand the nuances of what um what that phrase means so i come at it from the position that prisons don't work that they don't work on the measures that we want them to work on they don't work um, mm -hmm. at least as they are currently structured in a lot of places, including here and in the US. Um, we, I think the US unfortunately is, unfortunately is a little bit worse than us, but we are very much headed in that direction um, at the moment because I mm -hmm. come at it from the position, at least at the moment, prisons are essentially warehouses of human beings. And that's before the current uh, COVID crisis um, Never mind. <laughs> uh, but we might get onto that later, the state of them at the moment. But before that, they are just warehouses of human beings. And it, um, there's a quote, let me try and see if I can remember it, from Angela Davis, who's a mm -hmm. US activist, yeah, um, that prisons, prisons do not disappear social problems, they disappear human beings. Um, so they don't deal with the problems that cause people to end up in prison in the first place. And they only make things at best, they do nothing. And at worst, they make things worse. Um, you know, something I quite I like to say quite often is most of the drug addicts I know started in custody. Um, mm. It's a, a strange sentence. Obviously, all the all the drug addicts I know, at least who are admitted drug addicts are prisoners. And most of them um, started in custody. Um, you know, people who commit crimes as teenagers and then grow up completely malformed sort of socially uh, because they have grown up in a custodial environment. And when I think about it, I think that we could do things much better with a different system. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't think there are some people who need to be removed from general society for the safety and well-being of, of most people. Um, there, are some, there are some people who, unfortunately, whether or not it's because of mental illness or they have lost a genetic lottery or whatever, are compelled to act in ways which are extremely harmful. I'm curious, why do you prefer the term prison abolition rather than prison reform? If sort of you believe that prisons should still exist and you compared it to defund the, the police, um, yeah. there have been a, sort of quite a bit of like tech, uh, uh, sort of strategic pushback on these kinds of uses of language that seem like they then require a bunch of explanation of like well what i actually mean is this like why 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 do you feel like it's important to stick with the idea of abolition rather than reform um i think i've not been asked that before but i think um it's because the idea of prison is very much tied up with the idea of punishment and retribution mm. um that is when when people think of people who aren't involved in the prison system think about prison i think that the idea is that prison is a place you go to be punished and is about retribution for society for the wrongs that person has committed and i don't think that that is a good way to think about it at all i don't think that um especially that this links, links into the idea of free will if i don't think anyone necessarily chooses mm -hmm consciously to do things um then punishment and retribution don't mean anything um mm -hmm. a, yeah, this, this seems to be the challenge right like yeah. retributive justice punitive justice it seems like so do you would you say that in your experience the i mean I'm, I, I can certainly talk about my impressions of the American prison system, but I'm curious if y'all's prison system, if you feel like what balance of different ethical principles is in play within that system, is it predominantly punitive or is it meant to be primarily sort of rehabilitative? So um, <laughs> in, in theory, 
the our prison system is run on the idea of a healthy the healthy prison system which is um a, a set of guidelines from the world health organization about what um healthy prisons would look like and our our prisons are inspected um using the criteria of of healthy prisons which is that they are decent safe that there's purposeful activity and that people are prepared for resettlement um that's what they say that they are mm-hmm. for but they don't do any of those things right now properly they, they they say that they want to do those things but they are not decent places to stay for example um i had um an incident i think was it was a year or so ago um i had a, a client who was in um a victorian um prison because we've got quite a few prisons that still exist that were built in the victorian area and um he would complain to, and these these are these are prisons where cells were built designed for one human being that's quite often these days house three or four um that's mm. a side point but i had a client who was complaining to me um about the fact that he had no window he would not stop complaining about the fact he had no window and at first i didn't really understand him because i was like well some rooms aren't going to have windows and you are in prison so you know but it turned out what he was referring to was the fact there was no glass mm. in mm. the in the window of his cell and this is january i think this was i was having these conversations with him so the and that's in the recent past in the united kingdom so in terms of decent that doesn't work safety the rates of self-harm and assault are astronomical um most prisoners mm-hmm. don't feel safe um purposeful activity now that, that's another thing that can be talked about a lot in terms of covid about what that looks like right now but even before that um mm-hmm. most most prisoners would be kept in their cells most of the time because there just isn't the staff or the resources for them to do purposeful activity while they're there and then preparation for resettlement um that is very much lacking um i have so many clients who who get released with you know a 40 pound discharge so 40 sorry 40 pounds discharge grant and no coat in the middle of winter and off you go and um so they don't meet any of those criteria um at the mm-hmm. moment so mm-hmm. what what it looks like is a system for punishment and retribution um and a, a lot of and sort of when i look colloquially at the, at the conversation around prison and when i see people who don't have any contact with the justice system in terms of either going into prison or knowing someone who is a prisoner um it's the idea is that the the nasty bad man is behind the high wall and mm-hmm. they should be on bread and water and that'll and that will sort them out and that's all that we need to worry about in terms of the prison system forgetting that almost all of them are going to be back out here at some point can i ask how long did it take you to get your guy his window <laughs> so i think uh, what happened there so um he got moved from mm. that cell so it wasn't too long a period of time but and what happened to his window? Why did he not have glass in his window so, to begin with? Oh, so, the, so the reason there was no glass in the window is because so it wasn't anything that he had done. It was um, that prisoners would often bash out the glass in the windows um, in order to receive drone parcels of <laughs> drugs and mobile phones. Um, but And it was happening so frequently the prison had stopped replacing the window. That got very cyberpunk very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> they can't just take out the drones. Because <laughs> yeah, that that led to that led to some some interesting because it it it's become quite a serious problem. Drone drone drops into into prisons, and the I think the justice secretary at one point was suggesting that we were going to get um, dogs. There was a suggestion of getting dogs to deter the drones. So something ridiculous. I can't I can't remember the specifics of that. Mm. But um, I would yeah. think. I would think falconers would be a much more effective solution to that problem, personally. If you're looking for an animal-based solution, I would think. I would really love to see a raptor take a, a drone out of the air at 100 miles an hour. I think that would be pretty fascinating to watch. So, yeah, that's pretty wild. So, so talking about the, the punitive side of things, because, you know, 
both of us coming from this no free will perspective i think we are sympathetic to the idea that like the punitive retributive model is outdated and unhelpful and harmful um do you so do you feel like you see it sounds like you feel like there are other factors though for which we can still incarcerate people against their will things like consequentialist uh justifications is there anything else that you feel like is an important factor that you would consider um in in terms of deciding whether a person should remain in prison besides the risk of of future harms so i do think that that's the main reason i i like to think of it in terms of that prison should be used um for the people that we're scared of not of the people that we're annoyed at and to see it in more of a um a quarantine kind of way to make it relevant to, to the current times in terms of the person should be quarantined from everyone else until they're no longer a danger to anyone else but um it's also kind of i appreciate that that's easy for me to say because i i have never been the victim of a serious crime mm-hmm. um i've been the victim of minor crime many times but not serious crime um but i do know people who have been the victim of serious crime and that doesn't mm-hmm. tend to change my my view also you might want to as with them in the mental health system it's sometimes relevant to detain people for their own health and safety um mm-hmm. as well but it, it it's largely for consequentialist reasons that i would keep people detained mm-hmm. yeah so I want, I want to pick at this a little bit because you know i don't yeah. want this to just be the two of us just you know nodding <laughs> and agreeing at each other so you know i've tried to put myself into the mindset of people who might you know think about see that kind of approach as being unethical in some way and i'm curious about this so you know we can imagine like a hypothetical right where we invent a laser that if you shoot it at somebody's head it prevents them from ever reoffending ever right like a 100 percent non-reoffending rate um if we had such a laser, right, would we then no longer ever put anyone sort of against their will in prisons? Would we just zap them with the laser and send them on their way? Interesting. Um, I guess it's hard to imagine what that laser would look like because the causes are so complex for sure. the offending sure. in the first place. I wonder. And, and it's funny because a lot of the, um, at the moment, the, the people at the parole board decide to um, release, uh, at least in the UK, um a lot of the focus is on what you call their internal um, drivers rather than external risk management. So um, generally speaking, they are the pro board don't like it if a risk management plan for somebody is entirely based on external things to control their behavior rather than their own internal thought processes. Um, so to a certain extent, there is they already aren't being released unless that must cause all sorts of problems, though, right? Like, I mean, given how hard it is to prove the internal states of anybody ever, yeah. like, doesn't that, mm-hmm. the, the, do you get into, like, a weird place where you feel like you're trying to help these individuals sort of pretend in some way? I mean, like, given that you are sort of critical, I mean, like, let me back up a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. My impression of that kind of parole board approach would be that's a holdover from the old, the olden times where people think about individuals as these radically free, independent agents who need to have their, you know, souls cleaned so that they can then act properly or something like that in society again. Um, mm-hmm. Do you feel like you are doing a bit of a, like, catering to a system that has those sorts of principles that you strongly disagree with just to help your uh, clients uh, effectively navigate that parole board? So yes and no. So the first thing is obviously I don't coach them. I don't okay. tell them this is how to an- this is how to answer that question. Um, the main reason being if I gave them model answers, the parole board would know that I had given them model answers. Um, <laughs> because of the sort of the level of reading and comprehension um, amongst a lot of my clients. But um, what I will do, I will, I will tell them about the fact that, you know, that there will be a focus on their internal risk management um, in the hearing and that the, the, the parole board will want to hear that they understand the causes of the, of the offense that whatever offense they've committed. And they won't be particularly impressed if the causes are listed are entirely external mm-hmm. um generally speaking which I, it's a it's a bit of a drum that i try and bang about um, so I'm, it's a losing battle at the moment about how much you can realistically expect an individual to be able to explain their internal um mm. 
thought processes or understand them, but um, that is very much the focus. But I am conscious of the fact I've kind of sidestepped the laser question. So the laser question, <laughs> if, if don't worry, I was coming back to it. Yeah. You weren't, you weren't going to get away from it. <laughs> it was just if giving you time. Zapped, if it could be zapped with the laser. Um, mm -hmm. So, yes, probably because the, I think that there are, I guess I struggle with the, the concept of that they'd never reoffend because does that mean there's going to be no other drivers on their behavior ever again that might change the course of what they're doing and then commit a different crime? Anyway. Um, <laughs> but you release people on the expectation that you think the risk of them reoffending is extremely low, right? That's like, especially yeah. for these very oh, yeah. severe uh, crimes. Yeah, the, yeah, the, the, the test for release um, here in the UK for the parole board is whether or not your risk of causing serious harm is manageable in the community. So it's not that there's no risk. And they, mm -hmm. actually, te they actually release quite a lot of people who are de determined to be high risk um but they feel that the management plan is sufficient to manage them. And they generally, they are quite good because the, the serious reoffense rate, so mm -hmm. the rate at which someone released by the parole board commits another serious crime is um, under 1%. And it's been that for oh, wow. a, long, a long time, which suggests they are generally getting it. Another um, key difference right. between our systems. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Can you help folks um, who might like, could you give us a, like a concrete sort of walk through a little bit of what you mean by like an external factors management plan for a particular individual in these kind of situations? Yes, yeah, so um, external um, things are things like, um, they would include things like drug and alcohol use as an external cause of, um, mm -hmm. of risk. Um, and then external risk management is things like um, GPS tagging, lie detector tests. They use lie detector tests in risk management plans in the UK, which is strange because it's the one place you can legally use them because you can't use them in court hearings. Um, I think that the rationale for that is that they use them on the basis that they assume that the people under, who are subject to them think that they might work. And so that will cause preemptive mm -hmm. dis disclosure of information rather than actually catching lies. Um, it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah Jesus. it is Ugh. and to be fair the only people i've ever come across who've been say recalled to custody on a lie detector test um is because they've disclosed something because they thought that they might um get caught on the lie detector um so okay. those are the, so those are kind of examples of um external so another examples of external risk causing things are the people that person hangs out with so negative associates um mm -hmm things like that um and then um risk management plans are so when someone is so i know i said at the start obviously most of these people who have life sentences it's not whole life but it is in the sense that once they are released from custody they are on life license so they are subject to recall to prison for the rest of their lives um and the criteria for recall to prison and um, would be breach of their conditions they'll have a long list of conditions they have to abide by and that would be um things like prevention so the gps tagging lie detector exclusion zones areas they can't go into they have to have regular meetings um if they're in a halfway house or in a bail hostel curfews sign-in times things mm -hmm. like that yeah that, that's i guess that's we could say technically that's a way in which your system is more severe than ours though obviously it makes it less severe overall and that you're <laughs> so effectively saying you're on parole for the rest of your life rather than for some period of time after your crime at which point yeah. your life goes back to normal so that's that's very interesting so i want i want to come back to this laser question a little bit yeah, because i just want to press down here yeah back to the laser well like you know let's say it's not a laser people are you know put off by my my science fictiony hypotheticals you know let's say you know, we have a really, really effective 12 step program, right? And it, like within six months, we can make sure, you know, with a high degree of accuracy that a person is not likely to recommit their severe crime or something like that, right? Um, yeah. the, you know, the concern that I have, there does feel to me, you know, something that is missing there in the ethical equation that I think is more than just my holdover intuitions about wanting vengeance, which is that, 
you know, if, if someone tortures and murders another individual, right, and then six months later is back out in the world living their lives, there does seem to be a fundamental injustice that the people, you know, the person who's dead doesn't get to continue to live their life and the people who were, you know, connected to that person will suffer for the rest of their lives as a result of that action. But the individual themselves who did the crime could potentially be out substantially sooner and, you know, with those caveats that you just described, still living in life, right? And that mm -hmm. seems that seems very morally problematic to me. I'm curious how you wrestle with that tension. Yeah, I think there is there are issues with the system as it currently stands with regards to how um, victims are involved in it, and so there's a, there's a lack of support for them or education about what this system actually means and then so a, a lot of the time a lot of the things that happen in this arena become a surprise to them and an, an understandably upsetting surprise so the idea that someone if they're unsuccessful at parole will continue to have parole reviews every at least every two years until they either die or are released mm -hmm. things like basic things like that aren't explained which i think is is a is a problem um in terms of um if I had this magical 12 step program and the mm -hmm. person was out in, in six months, I, I do see why that is a, is morally difficult. So if there is, if I hypothetically someone has murdered someone and that person is back out six months after it has happened, yeah. um, in the current world in which I live, I can see why that would be extremely problematic because the idea that you could be sure that that person um has uh, sure that they're not going to do it again but also sure that they're sufficiently sorry because that's a big part of it people feel the need for that person to express a, uh, a relevant amount of remorse as well um for what they've done and and you would worry that they hadn't done that if they've only been in custody for six months but mm -hmm. i think Another thing that the current system does is that it um, takes into account the idea that included in the remit of serious harm is the harm that could be caused to the victims if they come into contact with this individual, because um, hmm. that would that would count as serious psychological harm, because um, the serious harm category includes psychological harm, and so. That's why a lot of the license conditions that, that released lifers will get include non-contact with those people, um, exclusion zones, so they are not allowed to go into a particular area. And if in some instances, depending on how serious it is, entire cities or entire countries of the UK, um, oh, wow. if that's oh, wow. all necessary, um, to, so they won't go anywhere near them. And if they breach that, they will get recalled um, to, okay. to prison. And the other thing I would say about that is that the, the prisoner also has a family um and so or sometimes sometimes hope, hopefully they still have a family unfortunately a lot of them lose contact with family over extended periods of incarceration and they are also they could they can also be seen as victims and mm -hmm. the whole all of the time that that person spends in custody also damages though that set of people as well um which i think mm -hmm. needs to be taken mm -hmm. into account and i feel that you could you could create a system where even though that person's not in detention anymore that they could be doing more to pay society back um mm -hmm. that's more beneficial than at the moment where they will sit in a cell 23 hours a day mm -hmm. yeah, it's interesting the, the part about the exclusion zones um as i was chatting um with my wife and editor lou prior to this episode uh she mentioned that there was a case recently in australia since she's from australia where um and this was this was a, a you know like a technicality led to a individual being released before they should kind of situation and this was a, yeah. a child sex offender i don't know if you, you probably probably heard this story it's probably gets talked about around y'all's water coolers but like the 11 year old girl i think it was who he had assaulted then killed themselves for fear of you know, like him coming back in a sense. Yeah. So, you know, that that is certainly, it seems like one kind of potential harm that could motivate uh, keeping somebody in um, for a longer period of time, it seems like. Um, but I wanna, I wanna also sort of poke at what seems to me an interesting tension in what you were just saying there about like, 
you know, if the person's only been in there six months, we're not going to be very confident that they are unlikely to reoffend or feel sorry or something like that. It's that feels to be in tension with the reality of these prison systems, which, as you've described them, it seems like the more time somebody spends in them, the the greater likelihood that they are to uh to you know to recommit a crime at some point you know they become a drug addict or something that could lead them to committing crimes and as you mentioned a lot of them become drug addicts within the system not a lot of them but at least some of them you engage with so like there's this weird idea where and i'm sympathetic too where it's like we'd want them to be in prison long enough to feel confident that they weren't going to do it again but sort of the whole problem is that keeping them in prison is what's what often leads to them causing more harm when they get back out afterwards so you like ideally Uh we'd want them in prison for as little time as possible in this way yeah i guess the, the issue is that um my understanding of what prison system is and what it does to people is not the common understanding of what the prison system is and what it does to people Mm -hmm. um so and there's also um a failure of people who don't have any experience in that area to put themselves in the position where they they are in custody for any reason they can't see themselves in that uh situation because i'm never going to do anything that terrible i'm never going to um hurt anybody like that and therefore I'm, I am fundamentally different to the class of person who does that. Mm-hmm. And so they, 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 even though I wouldn't do very well in solitary confinement for decades, they need to go and think about that, what they've done for a long, hard time. Um, I think that plays into it a lot as well in terms of a, a failure to um, is empathize the right word. I don't know. Um, a failure to put yourself in, to think that there is a set of circumstances over which you have no control in which you could have found yourself in that position it's just that through luck that you you haven't Mm -hmm. so then i'm curious do you feel like um i don't know how much you've explored the world of restorative justice as an alternative model is that something that you're interested in or something that you think might be uh sort of viable as a way to you know to reconcile this problem that I'm raising where we want some amount of justice for the people harmed and um, you know we need to find some way to incorporate that concern of justice into the system without it being this kind of eye for an eye punitive kind of model that we, we are previously dealing with. Do you think that restorative justice can, can fill that hole? I think that it, um, it can play uh, some role it certainly doesn't play a very big role at the moment at least in the um the cases that i'm involved in i do occasionally see um clients who are involved in restorative justice um situations where the victim wants to be involved um mm-hmm. where there's some kind of uh meeting or, or things like that but that's quite rare um at the moment i think the it has the potential to be better because you can potentially have a positive impact on society and spend instead of spending all of the money that gets spent on warehousing people if you spent it on that kind of program um, mm-hmm. obviously I don't, I don't have the evidence base for it but i like to think that that would be more net positive for society i guess i'd also have the concerns that that model also can sort of fail to deal with why certain people are more likely to offend than others in the first place. So it might, it doesn't fix the more systemic or societal issues that prison is is currently failing to address. I'm not sure that restorative justice necessarily does Mm. that either, Um, but that's more of a sort of a lack of um, research or knowledge than um, Mm -hmm. basing that on anything more firm. There's also, I guess I'd have some concerns about say particular classes of offenses in terms of, um, violence against women for example i would be concerned that sort of restorative justice approaches to that kind of offending might minimize that kind of offending um Mm. potentially because of the more systemic causes of it um but i think that it needs it it should be explored more and looked Mm -hmm. into more certainly than the current system of warehousing that we have at the moment yeah i think that makes sense and some of the data that i've seen is at least a little bit encouraging things like you know, they find that a large, I don't know if it's a majority, but a substantial number of 
uh, victims and survivors and families of victims, um, their primary concern is similar to ours, the concern about that it won't happen again kind of thing. And so like they're most interested, it seems like in whatever kind of model will get to that kind of solution rather than like they're, they, there's less coming into it with this need for sort of retribution or something like that. Um, and I do think that, you know, the hope would be that the solutions that they would work out uh, would be, like you say, sort of more constructive for the individual and the community rather than this kind of lock people away and not help them approach. So I'm curious, what uh, what kind of impact, you mentioned earlier COVID, uh, what kind of impact has COVID had on your world? Ooh, right. So if you, if you think it's had a big impact in general society, um, in terms of um, prisons, so... Um, at the same time as um, the rest of the country went into a national lockdown, um, the prisons went into a, a national lockdown of the prison system. But that, because because of the nature of a prison, was much more severe than it was for the general populace. So that meant that everything, almost every program, any recreational activity, everything stopped. Um, and they were they prisoners would be kept in their cells 23 and a half hours a day you would get half an hour out a day um, where you could choose to either have a shower call somebody um or um walk around the yard and you had the, you only had half an hour so you can't do all of them and um they that they were in, and then no visits no social visits no legal visits um for months and months and months and months um there was a slight loosening of that as towards the end of the summer where cases seem to be going in the right direction but that has again but that in that the loosening was only really in terms of visits and social contact all the other stuff did not restart and now it's all clamped back down again um in terms of how it impacts on my work specifically all hearings became remote mm -hmm. overnight um either video or telephone um which is not ideal when you're dealing with complex cases and people with complex needs and we're deciding something extremely important about their life mm -hmm. um it's not ideal but the, there was no alternative so we've had to um proceed on that basis um since march now there's no at the moment there's no particular sign of that changing um for various reasons in terms of um a large proportion of the parole board is older mm -hmm. um, and so understandably not keen to start coming back into custody the the pandemic itself in the prison i think the uk prison system has done better than the us prison system in controlling the virus mm. because of the it's a low bar but i'm glad you cleared yeah. it <laughs> in terms of the lockdown um they there were there were some deaths and there were cases but not it wasn't proportional with the general population they could they and they slammed down and i'm curious to see what the outcome will be of, of the current because the uk is currently in the second wave and the, there seems to be a lot more spread in the prison system hmm. this time than there was last time so i've had for example a series of hearings cancelled um, because the either the client or the wing the client is on um have covid mm -hmm. and that person then has to self-isolate and therefore cannot attend their hearing even if it's a video or telephone one um which didn't happen at the start of this um pandemic and is happening now so and that's just the sort of the immediate impacts we'll need to wait and see what the long-term impacts of this are in terms of the mental health of the mm -hmm. prison population which already is not great and then you've locked them away for 23 and a half hours a day for months and months and months. Um, and the, the cessation of all recreation and um, offender behaving work, psychology sessions, all of that was stopped for a very long time. And so the back was going to be a backlog. There was a slight reduction in the prison population, which is welcome because it's oversubscribed. But that was because the criminal justice system is also collapsing and ground to a halt and it wasn't feeding people into the system which mm. is why it's got why the, why the numbers went down it wasn't because they compassionately decided to release people um no naturally not so, yeah yeah that long-term harm element seem 
that, that yeah. part about the consequences of not knowing yet what it is seems pretty significant there in terms of yeah. locking everybody down in that way. You, you inevitably assume there would be various sorts of backsliding and, and difficulties as a result. So I'm curious how you, you know, we're getting, we're getting a little close to the end here, how you personally cope with this kind of profoundly unjust, voidy system, it seems like. You know, I work in academia, which is pretty bad, but it's nothing this kind of bad, I would say. Uh, it seems pretty utopian compared to the sorts of stories that, that you and I have chatted about. Um, do you have some sort of regiment of mental self-care that, that allows you to work with this stuff day in and day out? Yeah, so that's the first thing that came to mind is that the, the question assumes that I do cope. Oh, I mean, no, not necessarily. If the answer is I'm not coping, that's a fair answer. Yeah, no. Um. So, I mean, um, I think uh, the first thing is that I clearly have, um, when we talked, we talked about personality disorder and stuff earlier, um, when we were talking, um, mm -hmm. I clearly have a personality that allows me to do this work without... Um, causing me too much acute mental distress. There are plenty of people who couldn't um, sit in the room with the people that I sit in rooms with, or well, at mm -hmm. least I did before, that I sit in Zooms with now. Um, so there's, there's that aspect of it. Um, I do, I have previously had to step away from work before work became um, too difficult. And it's difficult on, in, in two distinct ways. One of them is just the, the trauma of the stuff I have to deal with in terms of the things my clients have done and also the things that have happened to my clients can be, so there's a, there's a vicarious trauma thing there um, that I have to be careful of. And then also just um, volume of work because this is a, it's publicly funded work. Um, it's not mm -hmm. well funded. And so I have to have a high volume of, of work um, mm -hmm. to, cause I work, I work for a for-profit business that, that relies on public funding. And so I have, to have a large caseload um, in order to make sure that we make money. Um, and so that's also something that I need to watch. So in terms of my mental health, I have previously had sort of a, a mental health crisis, if you like, where I had to step away for a little while hmm. um, to get myself back on track. But how I maintain myself now is um, things like, basic things like I'm not in work today. I've taken a day off. That's why I'm <laughs> speaking to you to talk about my work. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Good cope. Um, just um, having time, you know, being very strict with my, say, my weekend time that I do not do work in that mm -hmm. period of time and I, I, I do things that I enjoy um, in those periods of time. And I talk to people um if I'm feeling stressed and stuff like that. So thankfully, obviously I can talk to colleagues about specific difficulties because I can't go into specifics with like say my partner or my friends, but um, so I can talk to them and then also just talk to my friends about more general things like that. And that's, they're sort of the, the main ways in which I cope. And at the moment I am, I'm coping as well as anyone's coping at the moment in this pandemic. Sure. Um, right. 2020 coping. Yeah. yeah, I'm 2020 coping at the moment though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was funny when you described your psychology there at the second for a minute. I'm a, a giant Hannibal Lecter fiend. I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, Hannibal Lecter mm -hmm. world, um, but yeah. one of the, ma the main character in it, Will Graham, is this sort of disturbed uh, profiler of other serial killers. And the whole theme is like him trying to figure out whether he's really just one of them. And I was wondering if you were <laughs> going in a direction <laughs> of like, I sometimes wonder if I am that way too. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like, yeah, I'm not... Um... I don't think I've killed anyone, not that I can remember. No. Um, but, um, if you're having breakdowns, that's probably a, a good <laughs> sign, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do, I do find, I do find the, the, the fascinating what what distinguishes me from the, pe the people who do kill people. I, I, find, I do find that interesting. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm obviously able to tolerate quite a lot of um, quite traumatic information without, or, or having conversations with people who've done the worst things, um, who, might, who might be quite... Um, unpleasant to talk to um mm -hmm. and can tend to be able to come away from that um all right whereas if i relay not not the specifics but the general gist of that conversation to say my partner or something they will say i don't know how you sat in that room i don't yeah. know how you looked that person in the eye for example so mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I guess we all have different void tolerances in that way. Um, I'm curious, so if you flipped a switch, if you could flip a switch, right? We'll make it a switch instead of a laser this time. If you could flip a switch and fix one piece of the system that you deal with, is there like a particular piece that you feel like if we could just turn that one around, that would be like substantially helpful to a lot of people? Um, so yeah, I, I'm conscious that a lot of my my criticisms and stuff are all quite systemic and you know in, in my utopia land everything gets massive funding for social care and stuff like that and that, that fixes the problem but that's not that's a bit too big for a switch so um massive funding is a plausible answer i don't i don't I think, think that's a terrible I think, answer i think i would go with, with um i would fix the phone system in the prison system so that prisoners had mm. free um and easy access to telephones because um, that causes quite a lot of difficulty in that they have to, it's a significant proportion of their very limited income to mm -hmm. call people, including me, their legal representative. I can't call them because prison security. That's, that's weird. Um, yeah. Um, so, and often they're relying on one phone that's on the wing that they all have to share that's time limited to 10 minutes at a time and things like that, which I think that if they all had, the equivalent of a mobile phone, not with internet mm -hmm. connectivity necessarily, but a mobile device that they could use to call um, loved ones um, and or me. I think that that would, that would cause us, that would get rid of a lot of stress mm -hmm. and difficulty that happens in the, in the system at the moment, I would say. I like that because it's a very sort of small bore kind of issue that I think, but, but it's also, it highlights a weirdness there, of course, because it's like, you know, why... If, if it seems like connections to the outside world would be one of the best things to help an individual sort of remember why they shouldn't do the thing they just did, like yeah. cutting people off from that or limiting their access to it seems like the opposite of helping them. Though I assume there's a rationale here somewhere around, you know, not coordinating drone drops or something like that. Yeah, of course. I mean, they, they, they are only allowed to call um, on the normal phone. They're only allowed to call numbers that are pre-approved. So like my mm -hmm. number, for example, or your family members who have been vetted to make sure that it's not problematic and i'm sure you could do that though we've got we've got we have the technology mm -hmm. so. yeah seriously right so i mean i'm curious if there are any final misconceptions that you want to try to clear up that you feel like you see a lot with people who do not engage with these kinds of systems that you would want them to just try to understand how different the reality actually is i guess i would impress upon people the idea that um prison going to prison is the punishment um you don't go to prison to be punished um and i think a lot of people who've never experienced it um underestimate how damaging or how difficult it is to have your liberty taken away and if, if that's the only thing that's happening to you not being extra punished you just had your liberty taken away that is extremely mm -hmm. severe and difficult to deal with and um i think that a lot of people who don't experience it don't realize that um mm -hmm. they they because you see the common misconceptions about um prison being i don't know if you have this in the us but in the uk there's a common misconception about prison being like a holiday camp like they all get TVs and and things only like that. for our, ri our rich prisoners. We have we have white collar prisons for that. Yes. So, so yeah. So the idea that they all have TVs or they all and they all mm -hmm. and things like that. So that's that they literally talk as if having a TV mm -hmm. is some brilliant perk that would be worth going to prison for. And it's just I think yeah. if I could I could dispel that misconception, I would, I'd be quite happy. I wonder if that's a misconception that will shift some after this year of everybody experiencing lockdown. Like, you can ask your friends now, how, how did having a television help you cope I, with the loss yeah, of your liberty? That, that was the funny, the funny, I, I, had, I caught myself a couple of times when I was talking to clients, because um, mm -hmm. they'd ask, because you know, a lot of them would ask me how I'm doing mm -hmm. um, with, with the lockdown. And I would say, but without thinking about who I was talking to, I would say, it feels like I'm in prison. Oh, God. And then I would go, oh, that's really, that's, that's really rude. Sorry. And they, they would Dark. laugh. They, 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 they would find it funny. But yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, 
it it seems like it you know i i've i've seen some folks joking about this online that like this is the year that's radicalizing everyone towards prison abolition like you know if you think that prisons are great have you how have you coped with the past eight months um now of course obviously people will say well they deserve it because they did the bad thing and we've already talked about all of that but yeah i think yeah. that's i think that's a valuable uh, misconception to to deal with which is this idea that like merely having your liberty taken away is not sufficient punishment that they need to be under threat of sexual assault is a common theme in our culture for example or some you know yeah, some sort of yeah. yeah and how the idea that 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 people think that that will incentivize people to to be well behaved when if you think about well, would that would that incentivize you mm -hmm. to be to behave positively i don't think it would mm -hmm. at least for me well, I think that's a very good um, point to wrap up on, and I have to get over to torturing you now. So uh, <laughs> this is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. Uh, so for folks who are not familiar, um, what's going to happen here is I'm going to give you a list of things. You are going to tell me, are those things real or not real? Those are your two options. You and do I'm not get got, to... Yeah, I don't get yeah. to explain. Nope, no explaining, no hedging, no defining, no nothing. Just real or not real. Those are the only choices. Okay. Do you understand? Uh, I, I, I under, I'm not happy about it, but I understand. No. That's, that's a good sign of understanding <laughs> that you're not happy about it. That's perfect. So, all right. So let's just check, first of all, is anything real? Real. Yeah. Okay. So some things are real. So let's find out what's real. Okay. <laughs> so real or not real? The external world? Real. Okay. Colors. Real. Phenomenal consciousness. Ooh. Real. Free will. Not real. Mm, that is a gimme. Uh, selves <laughs> or persons. Not real. Genders. Real. Races. Not real. I'm loving your level of concentration. You're in the zone here. <laughs> <laughs> Species. Uh, real. Morality. Real. Rights. Not real. Hmm. Interesting. Mm. Knowledge. Real. God or gods. I want to explain myself. Not real. <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to have any pressure points. Um, society. Real. Money. Real. Numbers. Real. Fictional characters. Real. <laughs> oh, yes. I love it. <laughs> uh, holes like a hole in the ground. <laughs> Real. Mm -hmm. Chairs. Real. Sandwiches. Real. Science. Real. Natural laws. Real. Beauty. Not real. <laughs> Love. Real. Causality. Real. And finally, time. Real. You survived. How do you feel? Uh, relieved. <laughs> you got to that pretty well. There were just one or two there. There was a little bit of anxiety. I'm surprised the gods was the one that... Uh, I hope I haven't outed you to your family I or something no, like no, that. No, no. That, that's, that's because I knew the fictional characters one was coming up. That's why I was struggling with that. Oh, you were already caught in the trap. I see. <laughs> I appreciate you doing my favorite thing and saying that God is not real, but fictional characters are. That's just always my favorite joke. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Emma. This has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your, your voidiness with us. I guess there's really, you don't have anything to promote, do you? I feel like if we don't want you promoting your services because that's a bad sign if somebody needs them at this point, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Th things have gone wrong if you want my help. No, um... <laughs> Yeah, Any no, other I'm talks, not, maybe, I, or anything uh, that you want to promote, or you should mention at least uh, if you're on Twitter or anything like that. Um, sure, yeah, I'm 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 a, an occasional um, 
guest on uh, Skeptics with a K, and um, I'm on uh, on Twitter, but I'm not a very prolific tweeter. Uh, my Twitter handle is. I just mm-hmm. changed it because it used to be something I couldn't pronounce. It's parole underscore lawyer. No, fair enough. <laughs> That's very, very generic. Um, yeah, but no, we'll always take another shout out for skeptics with a K. So, yeah. uh, well, thank you so much, Emma, and good luck with surviving the rest of COVID and the continued voidiness. Thank you. You too. And I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. As always, I'd like to thank our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. We've got quite a few new patrons recently, so I'd like to thank Rambo Billy, Matthew Brown, former internet spaceship politician, Jess Abels, Luis Fernando Rodriguez, Nestor Buen, Intellectual Darkwave, Curdy, Rinthrin, uh, and Grant Godso. And as always, thanks to our $20 tier Duke patrons, blacknonbelievers.com, 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 Chad T., Jesse Rabinowitz, and Brenda Goodman, and our newest $20 patron, Patrick. Thank you very much. And most of all, all of the void thanks to our top tier patrons, Dave Maslich, the creepy eyes that stare at me from the void and our newest top patron big easy blasphemy thank you all so much if you'd like to support the show please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review on podcast apps follow us on twitter at etv pod and if you notice a small void growing within you consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus book club content. Most of all, and I cannot stress this enough, you are the void, and the void is you. you.